0: Shift presents Rights of the Renouncer, an audiobook serial podcast by Benjamin Kemp. From my readings in the archives, I know we failed to achieve the great technological feats our ancestors had hoped for. Our space travel, in particular, had suffered. We were not able to accelerate to even within a tenth of the speed of light. We had no sleeper pods, could not freeze and unfreeze living human beings. Only modest extensions of our lifespan had been made through gene-fixing, and longer life would have been necessary, I imagine, for such capabilities to have been made possible. Since we could not leave one system and arrive at another still alive and intact, what use could the machines possibly have for us in those great distances between stars? They had no need of our assistance in either their long-term planning or their day-to-day operations, and so we had no generation ships. The machines had many limits as intelligent agents, but there is no comparison to be made between our capabilities and theirs when it comes to navigating between stars, preventing collisions, and so on. They outdo us in the avoidance of almost every kind of error, being well-suited to the deterministic execution of the activities for which they were engineered – resource gathering, navigation, and spaceflight. the construction of anything needed from those materials found commonly in orbit around stars, and ultimately, the built environment in which we, the humans in their care, would be born and live our lives. By the time of my birth, we had all come to the Viscania Prime System as embryos and been incubated there born out of the fluid sac apparatus the machines used to simulate a womb. To this end, the hospital and its early modest grounds, with its robotic caretakers, these were all the first structures built on the surface with humans in mind. By my generation, there were a few adults to look after and care for the young, but this had not been true for the first several. Those initial attempts at raising human beings had not been successful, the children in question dying early in their childhoods. The hospital at this time was a single-domed shelter with its own protective atmosphere. Without viable humans, this was all that was needed. The next few generations made it further, though eventually succumbing to various cancers or dementias before reaching the age I am now. Importantly though, the last of those generations had been long-lived enough to be there for the following generation of children, who were then raised with human adults present for the first time in our history that first generation of children who grew up with the assistance of their elders was the elder generation that was there for me. It had all been a necessary sacrifice to create this colony. Perhaps not necessary, you could argue. Nonetheless, it was the sacrifice we made, the only way we and the machines had found to make a start. The hospital expanded and the city grew up in proportion to it, as an Earth city would grow at a scale to match the size of its warehouses, the productivity of its fields, the local transportation network, and so on, Darklight City's primary business was the production and maintenance of human beings. And so it grew accordingly. I spoke earlier of how we failed to achieve technological visions for spaceflight. The same was true of genetic engineering. The machines, and we in turn, had the power to make modifications, But it was not just a matter of separating the good from the bad and eliminating the bad. True, we could identify and prevent many harmful mutations. This was trivial before the machines left the solar system. For our environment, certain variants were always preferred over others. Beyond this, every interesting polymorphism was a double-edged sword. All adjustments seemed to reach across the genome and interact with one another. And that messiest of sciences, the further interaction with environmental conditions that led to phenotypic differences, was omnipresent. That latter condition was the great experiment in which we all partook, and so the hospital's role continued to be that of the central business district of this enterprise. In any set of experiments sufficiently complicated so as to be interesting, unforeseen circumstances emerge. For us, it was the dream world. Imagine the confusion of the machines. Unable to experience that place directly, equipped only with models of healthy sleep in physiological terms. This simple biological basis for dreaming was the only concept of it that fell in their purview. In the archives, they could only access an awkward mix of technical accounts of dreaming and self-reports of human dreamers throughout history, with little to nothing of the raw dream surviving the act of waking and gap-filling confabulation. The machines had comprehensive diagnostics to apply to each human in their care, as matched their gardener's intent, growing us like plants in a greenhouse. Then, as we grew older for the first time, they expanded the scope of their child-rearing activities to something like animal husbandry. How does monitoring dreaming even factor into this labor? How would you, an undreaming machine, guess that you should be tracking the subjective contents as reported on Waking? to suspect that they would differ categorically, and if so, that it could matter. And then we, on waking. We had experienced and accepted the dream world as it was. Only later, as we aged, did we have trouble comparing our own dreaming experience to that of those half-reports in so many eras of accounts, real or fiction, from the archives. What could we, or they, make of it? Eventually, as we found ourselves returning to some of the same places, we spoke to one another, began to correlate our own experiences in dreaming, realized we had come near each other when seeing distant figures. The dream world began to emerge not as an odd, identical experience or the artifice of each individual mind, but as a cohesive and shared reality. The machines were able to help us assemble these fragments, but the direct experience was wholly closed off to them. Whatever net our dreaming selves wandered into, whatever information in our brains interfaced involuntarily with that place, they knew of no software by which to access it. I had left the bar half an hour earlier and walked on my own toward the hospital. This was the closest thing I had to a homecoming. The only part of the city I had lived in changed though it was. The changes were sufficient to rob the place of familiarity to leave me as a tourist, just passing through the land of my birth. I listened to the swoosh and burble of the great river get louder as I approached the half-familiar buildings at its shore. In the hospital the bodies of the untethered lingered while their minds were away not fully catatonic some instinctive drive kept the reflexes intact eyes glanced here and there in response to sound stimulus if left to fall a hand would reach out to catch or steady the body it was attached to it was if some spacecraft had been left in standby all support systems nominal sensors intact but no pilot no course No one to read the sensor outputs of the logs of various subsystems. A few caretakers were there, some machine, some human. In the Viscania system, we don't have dedicated professions. At least no sense of a wage or livelihood as in the old times of Earth. In your own system, you may have matched our social structure or differed. With the age of our colony, we defer to the machines for governance. But we are still motivated to be useful, to learn and to know things, and so on. And some people, here in the city, out of friendship, obligation, or a sense of appropriateness, made time to help care for the untethered or sit with them. Otherwise, the machines kept to the basic duties of feeding, sanitary disposal, and the like. It was physical maintenance they were concerned with, rather than comfort. As I walked that ward where the untethered were kept, I saw many who had been afflicted. Forty-nine, the readout displayed account helpfully. I had recognized eight of the faces, a few I had grown up with. The other 41 were born or grew up after my departure. Here in my late forties, I was an elder among so many afflicted as children, and I possessed a reflexive parental instinct toward them. I wanted to save all of them, but I had to start somewhere. I came at last to where Owen sat, rocking slowly in a chair. He had aged similarly to me, slightly less if my gut impression merited trust. I had been prepared with images the machines had provided, of course, but it was something different to encounter someone in person rather than from a dossier. I felt the breath catch in my upper airway, my mouth suddenly drying out. The image of him I carried inside me was that of my teenage friend, not this empty, aged body. Owen and I were both born in the same generation on Viscania Prime, in the settlement that one day would become Dark Light City. We only had meager quarters then, small children packed in domes that were being expanded into the grounds of the hospital, the further modules that would grow into the city in various stages of construction. Our generation was considered a resounding success and viability by the machines, a sterile way of saying that most of us did not die or degenerate to incoherent rambling by late adolescence. I knew Owen in my youth with the intimacy that early bands of humans must have felt, before there were larger federations of tribes or states. We were all family of a sort, more diverse genetically of course, the machines saw to that not directly related. But all the early bonding instincts made us as siblings and neighbors. With limited quarters and means, we had little in the way of privacy or individual property. Almost everything of his was also something of mine. Owen and I gravitated toward one another. He performed some essential social role I could not. If I made a joke or observation, it was underneath my breath, just to myself. He had a natural instinct for repeating the higher quality of these remarks giving credit or not as the mood struck him i was of a mind to shrink away from even the kindest of attentions and was happy to trade much of the credit for him to surface my thoughts to others then there was one night that i woke from my dreams and owen did not the material conditions were as simple as that i attempted to shake him awake and his eyes opened he looked at me there was nothing there. Even now, composing this account, I can feel my stomach sink with dread at the memory. He was as the other untethered are now, no crew on his ship. The machines had nothing to offer me. No study I made of humanity's past matched his condition. I could find mentions of similar symptoms from outbreaks of viral encephalitis, disorders of dopamine, and other neurotransmitters. None of that applied here. To make sense of what happened, I would have to study the dream world and my experience of it. I did not yet know, but my life course was set from there, my time away and my final return here. If I could have fed my raw experience of the dream world into the machines, would they have predicted the arc of my life? The affliction aside, His body would have been free at least from the anxiety and neuroticism of having its keeper present. I knew I had weathered more exposure to those forces than Owen in that time. Whatever any outside observer would have made of my time on Oneri Station, it was not peaceful. The time away and my return. For me, every next move had eventually become obvious and necessary. But the future those moves implied was like a vast sheet of one-way glass. It seemed to be peering into me, inspecting me, testing my worthiness, but I could see nothing through it. What is the function of grief? Why would such a thing evolve? Was it a punishment for having failed our friends, the source of great sorrow there, just to coax our species into a slightly lower failure rate? Was it just the misapplication of a regret meant for the exile and the outcast? Or perhaps its inverse, a warning to make casting out or killing another only a last resort? The stakes of being together as humans has to be high, if there is any underlying purpose in grief at all. And I? Owen had left involuntarily, but my exile was by choice. I had made my appeal to the machines a few weeks after he had not woken, When I failed to relent, when they came to believe I was set on such a course, they had granted this wish. I could still hear and feel that shaking force through my entire body as the base of the rocket became a series of explosions, carrying me away from that planet-shaped trap. The land becoming smaller than the limits of my vision, then just a bulging spheroid, empty space and the red sun beyond. When I left, I had no plans of coming back soon, or perhaps ever. My thoughts instead turned to figuring out what the point of my existence was or should be at all. What good is a human being? I had considered this question often in my 30 years away. It dominated my thoughts the first few years. It is always intrinsically coupled to that fundamental human problem. Given that I'm alive, what should I do about it? I could be flippant and tell you that to be human only means to experience the universe in a particular way. There's some truth to that, but I find it a bit vacuous. An abuse of language for an observation that loses salience when viewed from any other angle. What use are we to others, then, more directly to the machines? Of course, the machines were imbued by their makers with the desire, above all things, to spread humanity to other star systems. It was what they were for, and they were indisputably designed by our ancestors. There was no place for them to doubt their purpose, but we were not just some passive material for them to spread, either. As far as our kind was concerned, the machines engaged most of all in granting us wishes. Machines are, despite the craft of all humanity, dull companions. I became painfully aware of this in my solitude on an area station. I had machine company, after all. And yet, solitude is the right word for what I experienced. I interacted with machines in even more ways than one does another human, by voice, text, direct sensing of my own neural pathways, sensory output, whatever means they could supply or invent. On the other side of machine interaction, though, it's all business and no play. This playfulness says something about the essence of humanity, and the machines focused above all else in creating ways and spaces in which we could play. This project of wish fulfillment provided the machines with a vast creative market. As instinctively as animals play fight with one another, humans toy with possibilities in the world. Exploration and generation, we were still the machines better in this. And who knew what possibilities would become realities, like my own project here, indulged, granted a life of solitude in orbit. And maybe now I was tapped as part of that greater machine and human hybrid. That superorganism, to venture into the dream world where no machine could, and make use of that training I could not have justified, at least in machine terms, when I undertook it. And as I now know, to encounter, as a representative for our kind, part ambassador and part soldier, what I encountered in that place. In my teens, having lost my friend, none of that had crystallized yet. I just knew it felt wrong to carry on as though nothing had happened. The archives and our virtual environments had taught me that same mix of science and earth history as the other children, this faraway sense of being human. The makers of the machine fleets might have imagined the last few centuries would have been of more interest. Those political and technological developments had ultimately culminated in the project that produced the colony on Viscania Prime. It was our origin story, after all. But that period was contingency stacked upon contingency the noise of each historical accident that led to that unification of purpose having masked the full possibilities of humanity. One person here or there, dying or living in this place or that, this country waxing instead of waning and vice versa, and everything comes out differently. The archives possessed thousands upon thousands of imagined worlds. The immediately preceding history and soul was of smaller interest and relevance to us than those imaginings being itself but one accidentally wrought example of how humans might live. Even then, I was drawn to the most ancient patterns. Human minds across vast gulfs of time and space had engaged with one another, working on the same problems over and over again. They built on others, gained advocates and enemies across millennia, lines of thought vanishing or multiplying. The scientific insights of the past centuries into the physical nature of reality, the brain, the commonalities of information and representation, these all helped shed insight on the ancient problems, but only just so. For the great problem, what do I do next? There is no simple causative principle that emerges from humanity's understandings of the workings of the universe. Like so many before me struggling with this, I had renounced the life of the householder. I cannot say with a straight face that I sought any kind of enlightenment. I had a simple animal urge to bolt, to escape the place where my friend had come to harm, to avoid its contagious power, its infection. It was a selfish, bestial urge to get away that solidified under my own ability to rationalize it into a fortress of determined action. Then I fell asleep for the first time while my shuttlecraft made its way to the small, newly assembled habitable quarters and the relay point at Viscania Prime Lagrange 5. In that place between homes, I entered the dream world and found both myself and it to be as distant shadows cast from different portals onto the same wall. I had a new purpose then. I did not know where it would take me, did not know the point of being human then or even now, but I knew of a point, one thing I could do, an obvious next step. And so, in taking these steps, we chart out the course of our lives. Ready? A machine voice in the earpiece. The time for revisiting these thoughts had ended. I felt the drowsiness hit me as I sat next to Owen and nodded. A small, wheeled drone entered the room and extended a single appendage with a needle and lens toward me. I presented my right wrist, a fast, unceremonious snap, and the needle entered a vein. Then a bandage was wrapped around me by another arm that must have been extended by the same machine. I was connected to the IV. I sipped from a cup of black tea. This I had come by honestly, experimenting with camellia plants in my garden until the right mix of isolated biome, substrate adjustment, and genetic fiddling had given me access at last to one naturally occurring form of caffeine. That time-tested central nervous stimulant and its corresponding spikes in adrenaline and cortisol secretions after consumption. The human mind was like a stringed instrument. It needed a certain level of tension to function ideally. Too little, and it flapped around uselessly, failing to produce any audible tone. Too much, and it would snap when played. I joined those before me who had used tea to tune their concentration carefully to match the work at hand. I felt a hyper-awareness of my body and its configuration begin to spread over me. Something was out of place. I reached into my pocket and pulled out the evil eye charm. The Nazar, as the machine had informed me in its rambling, that the child had handed to me on my entrance to the city. The abstract eye on the surface seemed somehow aimed at me without looking. There were several similarly colored beads strung along a bit of cloth leading back from the eye. The blues, whites, and blacks turned just out of alignment with one another. I worked my fingers around the beads, feeling a compulsion to tweak their arrangement. The rings around the eye seemed to shift in my peripheral vision as my focus moved away, my eyes failing to accurately track the roughly demarcated boundaries of the blue rings as my pupils shifted and dilated in reaction to the chemicals entering my bloodstream through the IV. I held Owen's hand, sitting in that ward, the chemical cocktail the machines and I had prepared sweeping through my body. Beginning to soften my perception. My visual input faded slowly as a sense of otherworldly calm took hold. I felt the steady beat of Owen's pulse from my grip on his hand. Now, already scarcely remembered, the high frequencies of beeping around me sucked down to a lower range, then washed out into a steady, uncolored tone, then pure physical sensation. That pulse would lead me, at least I hoped to him. Or some other input from my real-world perception or that of the machines monitoring him, feeding me raw signal. I hoped one of those would provide me a means by which to find and anchor him. Those thoughts and plans were already dissipating from my awareness, though. The unconscious parts of me would have to see to them. I closed my eyes, feeling that half-sleep take me. The Rights of the Renouncer novella is out in Kindle and paperback format now. The album The Scania Prime and EP Rights of the Renouncer are available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream music. Thanks for listening.